said, what are the fundamentals of faith? And they, they sent him a list of things. And actually, top of the list was this one, the authenticity and authority of the Bible. I thought, okay, we'll give that one a nudge. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we'll see how we get on. So authenticity. So what do I mean what do we mean by authenticity? I'm actually going to go back to the keys for this first, just to talk a little bit about authenticity. And we'll start with story. You see, back in the day, there was an instrument called the harpsichord. Yes, and um, anyway, one day there was a, a music maker, Bartholomew Criswarte, in um, Italy, and he got frustrated by the harpsichord, and not actually by the sound of it, he got frustrated that it couldn't go loud or soft, it just was the same, exactly the same. So, like any good bloke, he thought, I know, the solution is to hit it with a hammer. And he did! He invented a hammer system, and he invented something that you could go loud or soft. And he called this invention the Graciam Bolo Col Piano e Forte, which means the key symbol which goes quieter and louder. However, that was soon abbreviated to the Piano Forte, which means quieter and louder, and that was subsequently abbreviated to the piano. Now, the piano is an amazing instrument. You know, it goes nice low notes, really high notes, and, you know, it does, um, you could basically replace a whole orchestra with just the piano because it could do melody, it could do chords. But however, there's some major disadvantages to the piano and the principal one being is it's not very portable. In fact, I was thinking about wheeling the piano from the foyer into here for this demonstration. I thought, nah, it's just too big, it's too heavy. So the and um, other things are they go out of tune. Those pianos have hundreds of strings in them, and they actually go out of tune and need to be tuned, and that's a huge job. Not like a guitar which has six strings. Uh, and the other one is quite hard to amplify. Anyway, so come the advent of electricity, and in 1915, someone thought, let's make an electric piano. We'll solve all those problems. The problem being is that until quite recently, you just they made things. Now, if you listen to that, does it sound like a piano? And you say, yes, it sounds a little bit like a piano, but, you know, it's missing that richness. It's missing the reverberation, the wood, and all that sort of stuff that you get. So, I mean, the electric piano is nice, and it sounds a little bit like a piano, but is it authentic? You know, is it the authentic sound? And you'd say, well, no, it sounds a bit like it but it's not authentic. So it wasn't until the 80s that they actually, actually I need this, um, it wasn't until the 1980s that they had digital technology and then we got that authentic piano sound. So what does that mean for the Word of God? What, what does this mean for the Bible? Okay. Is the Bible the authentic Word of God or is it just a collection of wise sayings? You know, so that's what I mean by authenticity. Is it the Word of God? And we can look internally, we can look into the Bible, and we'll do that, and see, is, you know, what does the Bible say about the Bible? We can also look externally and look at, well, what does the world around us, how, how does this Bible compare 
to you know what we see in the world around us. And we're done. At, we're going to do both this morning. Okay. So we'll start with internally. And I've got a couple of scriptures that we can look at. Okay. The first one is the the most obvious one and the most um, commonly quoted is 2 Timothy 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for good work. So, so the Bible says that it's inspired by God. Job done, eh? I think there's cakes out there. <laughs> Short sermon? Good. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, some people, if you believe the Bible's inspired by the Word of God, that's all you need. But then if you don't, then um, if you don't, um, then, oh, my wife's getting me some water. Thank you. <laughs> I texted her earlier. Um, um, yeah, ruined my chain of thought there, but <laughs> that's all right. So, um, yeah, if the... Um, Bible says it. And this other scripture, it actually just points to us another specific portion of scripture. And the, the letters of Paul, we know that Paul wrote a whole lot of the epistles or a whole lot of the letters in the New Testament. And it says, consider that our Lord's patient brings salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also write to you with the wisdom God gave him. He writes this way in all his letters, speaking in them about such matters. Some parts of his letters are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the rest of their scriptures to their own destruction. So here, Peter is affirming Paul's writings as being scripture. So he's saying, well, this part of the Bible is an actual fact inspired by God. It is scripture. But he makes another really interesting point about all scriptures that some, sometimes they're hard to understand. Excuse me, and that people distort them, and you know, so that's interesting. So that's what the Bible says about the Word of God. It says it is the Word of God. But what other evidence we have, and this is also a little bit of internal, is that um, you know, how does the Bible agree with each other? So who here knows how many people wrote the Bible? How many authors there were? Oh, yeah, one. Oh, Gary, yes, God. How many? 40, that's right. There were 40 authors, okay? It was written in three different languages. It was written over 1,500 years. It was written in 13 different countries in three different continents. Wow. Mm. Yeah, so all these people, and it agrees with each other. In fact, it's a literary literary? It's, it's a masterpiece. It's an absolute masterpiece. There's a central theme, and that central theme is the fall of mankind and Jesus being the redeemer of mankind. Jesus is introduced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right at the start of the Bible. It says, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his head. 
And so that is the first very specific prophecy of the Bible pointing to Jesus. But if you look in all the books, he's there. We can see him. And so it's absolute masterpiece. And of the, these authors, you've got doctors, you've got fishermen, you've got shepherds, you've got kings, you've got rich people, you've got poor, and yet they've all written this work which has the same theme and agrees with each other. Can we compare that to maybe Hollywood? Okay, or compare it anything today. You know, anything today, you'd get 40 people or even um, or a bunch of people to write something, will they agree with each other? And my example was from Hollywood. Big, big budget, big movie franchise where they thought we'd get three, and it actually only ended up being two. Two people to write the story. You write this part of the story, and then I'll take over and write this part. And they didn't talk to each other. Works for the Bible, so it worked for them. However, you know... Um, you probably know what I'm talking about. Some people love these movies, Star Wars, The Last Trilogy. Some people love them, but a lot of people, but not everyone, a lot of the fans are really disappointed. They felt, well, actually, doesn't agree with what's gone before, and it had really mixed reviews, you know, some good, some bad. Um, and that's, you know, that's two people trying to write a book, and here we have 40. And so with that, with the agreement of the Bible, there's no contradiction. So if I now told you that um, The Last Jedi was the best Star Wars movie ever and everyone loved it, you'd say, hang on, Phil, you just said it wasn't the best one. You know, I've just contradicted myself. In the Bible, you can look through it. It has no contradiction. So what does a contradiction mean? It means a combination of statements, ideas, or features that are opposed to one another. And you cannot find that in the Bible. What you can find in the Bible, and this is where people say there are contradictions in the Bible, is you can find variations. And that's when two people, or even the same person, where you hear the same story two different ways, two different focuses. So an example of this is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where the first chapter of Genesis is a very chronological order of creation, and you know, a number of days for this and all that. Where Genesis 2 is an order of creation, as an account of creation, focusing on mankind. And if you read them, they're quite a different focus, but they don't contradict each other. It's actually very common to find this in the gospel because you've often got four different people telling the same story. You know? And some of them had some information, some didn't. Um, for example, just I'll do just one example. Luke, on the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, this robber beside him repents. He, he comes to, you know, says, oh, don't, don't, don't you know. And um, he comes to Christ and Jesus says, yes, I'll, you'll be with me in parasite. However, if we read Matthew, in Matthew 27, 44, in the same way the rebels who were crucified with him also he heaped insults on him. So he doesn't have that story. But if you look at it closely, Matthew's account doesn't make Luke's account wrong because the robbers did a, um, heap insults on him. You know, and vice versa. So there are variations in the Bible, but there's no contradictions. Mm. So, um, so that's agreement. So that's the end of looking internally about, one, what the Bible says about itself, and two, um, you know, how it agrees. So now we're going to look externally, okay? What does the Bible say about certain matters, and how does it agree with what we know now? through science and all that. And we'll, we'll start with medicine. Okay, so Leviticus 17, verse 11. Okay, 
says this, the life is the flesh. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, so we know, and I'm a veterinarian, so I've done a little bit of study on this, blood fights disease. Okay, it brings nourishment to the cells, it repairs tissue, it promotes growth. And, and we know this for a fact. However, they didn't always know this. They used to think that a lot of diseases were caused by too much blood. So what you do, you go to the doctor and he'd put leeches on you to remove the blood. Okay, so how, how did the Bible know this thousands and thousands of years ago, but the doctors until about 400 years ago didn't know it? You know, was that divinely inspired, maybe? Anyone know what that is? Okay, so you can see the COVID-19 isolation facility sign up there. So that is a picture of one of our MIQ stations. Do you know where the concept of quarantine was introduced? In the Bible. In the Bible. Yes, Leviticus 13.46. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Okay, so that's a principle that we are still using today, a medical principle we're using today, yet that was a long time before we knew anything about bacteria or viruses, inspired by God, you think, maybe? Yeah, yeah I think so. Here's another one. Numbers 19... Uh, verses 14, then I'll skip a few, into, uh, and then verse 19. This is a law that applies when a person dies in a tent. Anyone who enters the tent and anyone who is in it will be unclean for seven days. And every open container without a lid fastened on it will be unclean. Skipping to 19. The man who is clean is to sprinkle those who are unclean on the third and seven days. And on the seventh day he is to purify them. Those who are being cleansed must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and that evening they will be clean. Here we've got some, you know, lots of concepts. We've got quarantine, okay? We've got washing with water. Uh, we've got changing of clothes. We've got time for bacteria to, to die. The, the one that that amazes me is the lid one. Verse 15, every open container without a lid fastened to it will be unclean. You know, we didn't know anything about bacteria until 1600 when they invited the, in, invented the microscope and then they could suddenly see them. You know, but 17, no, 1676, in fact, is when they discovered bacteria. You know, but this principle here... It's all about, if you, if you, from a microbiological point of view, it's amazing, you know? So how did we get that? How did they know that? Was it uh, maybe it's because the Egyptians know? You know, these guys had just come out from Egypt, you know? Maybe they got their inspiration from there? Well, no, because we actually know the Egyptians also wrote down a whole lot of their stuff, and they, we know a lot about the Egyptian medicine at the time. So one thing they did do, they were good at cleaning this, so we'll give the Egyptians there, but nothing about quarantine, you know, probably, but some of their medicines still used today, like snake oil for baldness, that was a common cure for Egyptian, and I haven't tried it, maybe I should. <laughs> right, anyway, so all this medical knowledge, you know, points to the fact that this book, 
the Bible is divinely inspired. The stuff that the people of the time could not know about, yet science and medicine today tells us about. So we'll leave medicine. We're going to go on to astronomy. And we'll start with Job 26.7. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Now, these days, we know that the earth is just sitting in space, not suspended on something. But the people of the day didn't. Ancient cultures, looked, a lot of them, believed the earth was actually held up by something. So the Egyptians thought that the earth was on five marble pillars. Five marble pillars were holding the earth up. The Greeks said that was on the shoulder of the god Atlas. You know, he's holding the earth on his shoulders. Oh, the best one is the Hindus. Okay, the Hindus. The earth was on the back of elephants, which was in... St they were... Oh, and when the elephants moved, you got an earthquake, by the way. Okay? And the elephants were standing on a turtle, and then the turtle was actually standing on a snake swimming in the sea. Hmm. Yet the Bible says the earth was on nothing. Okay, any flat earthers out there? <laughs> no? Oh, no, I'm going to get onto some more conspiracies, but that's right. Oh, not, not really. He, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. So wherever we find the story of the earth in the Bible, it's quite clearly a globe. It's a globe. Yet the earth was considered flat until about 1600. Okay. Um, <laughs> You know, and even, you know, there are people, like in the first century, some of the Greeks were thinking maybe it was a globe, I think Socrates or something like that. But Isaiah, Isaiah was written hundreds of years before that even. Okay. And, um, you know, so divinely inspired, we know that that is not what the earth looks like in our solar system. Okay. The stars. In 150 BC... There was a guy named Hippocrus, and he counted the stars in the sky. He looked up, and he said, it's done. 1,022 stars in the sky. And for 250 years, that was the figure that was used. And then another guy named Plotlemy, he said, no, nah, you're wrong. You're wrong. He found four more. 1,026 stars in the sky. And for the next 1,300 years, that was the figure of how many stars in the sky there was. There was 1,026. Then a guy called Galileo invented the telescope. And we discovered there's billions and billions of stars in the sky. You know, um, and what about if we read the Bible? Well, in Jeremiah 22, 33 verse 22, I've got the two scriptures there, it says, as countless as the stars in the sky. The stars in the sky are countless. Then in Genesis 15, 5, um, he says, well, this is right at the start of the book, he took him outside and said, look up at this, this is to Abraham, look up at the stars in the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So here we've got two um, accounts in the Bible where the stars are countless. You know, there's more than you can announce. You see, 
the Bible is not a science book. It's not a book on science. Yet everything we find in it are consistent with science. However, there is a bit of an elephant in the room. <laughs> yes. A bit of an elephant in the room. And look, I've looked into this lot, and I could go down this rabbit hole for hours, but we won't. I just wanted to acknowledge it, okay? That, um, you know, there's, according to modern science, the world is billions of years old. Billions of years old. And yet if we read the Bible... You know, it suggests that it's nowhere near that old. It's thousands of years old. So how do we account for the discrepancy between them? And, um, well, you've got to think... And now, there's some ways of doing it. You hear people, they interpret the Bible in such a way. They use scriptures such as the day is like 10,000 years, and they look at Genesis and say, well, maybe there could have been a gap here, and that's one way of looking at it. Another way is people use the hyper-faith card. Well, the Bible says it's this old, so we're just going to have faith despite of all the other evidence. Um, that, and then, like, oh, Satan put dinosaur bones in the ground. You've heard that one before. Rubbish, okay. The other way is to think, actually, look at the evidence, look at um, what science says, but then look at it to the Bible. And then you've got to think, where does the billions of years come from? Well... You see, modern science has a problem. They're trying to explain creation without a creator. You know? They're trying to explain creation without a creator. It would be like trying to explain what that road in front of the building out there is for without explaining cars, you know? But, so the way they've done that is they've said, well, if, if we give it enough time, maybe everything happened by random chance. You know? And so that's where the billions of years have come from. Personally, I've studied it quite a lot, and I think that a young earth with a flood explains everything we see in geology, paleontology. I find it explains it much better than any other theory I've had. Don't have time to go into it today, though, so we're going to leave it there. Next time, maybe, maybe, yeah. Right. Now, so that's science behind us. Now... We're going to look at prophecy. Okay, and now this, to me, this is where the rubber really hits the road as far as the Bible being inspired by God. You know, because the Bible is a book full of prophecy. You know, it, it predicts things that are going to happen. And um, we're going to start, we'll look at some Old Testament scriptures that point to Jesus. And I've got a long list. I haven't actually put them up here, and I'm not actually going to read them out. I'm just going to um, explain some of them. So we've got in Isaiah chapter 7, it says he will be born of a virgin. And in Luke chapter 1, that happened. In Micah chapter 5, it said he was born in Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2, that happened. Genesis 49, he would be born of the tribe of Judah, and that and Matthew happened. Psalm 78, he would speak in parables. And all through the New Testament, that happens. Zechariah 9, verse 9. He would ride on the colt of a donkey. And in Matthew 21, we see that fulfilled. In Isaiah 53, he, he was rejected by his own. 
and in John chapter 1, that also happened. In Isaiah 53, 7, he would stand silent before his accusers. Matthew 15, verse 5, that happened. Psalm 22, they would cast lots for his robe. And in John chapter 19, we read that happening. In Psalm 22, hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented, they said they would pierce his hands and feet. You know, and we look in the account of his execution, and that's what happened. And this was prophesied way before it was even possible. Yeah. Amazing. Also Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the words of Jesus on the cross. Zechariah 11, verse 2, He would be sold to enemies for 30 pieces of silver. And in Matthew 26, 15, that actually happened. You know, they prophesied the exact amount, the exact price that was on his head was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened. You know, how can that not be inspired by God? And Isaiah 53, verse 9, he was buried with the rich, and he was. He was buried in a tomb that was appointed for rich people. So some of the criticisms of Jesus, is, oh, he fulfilled, he was a self-fulfilling the prophecies. And there's even accounts, you know, to, in order to fulfill prophecy, Jesus did this. You know, but it's very, very hard to choose where you're born. Or, or in fact, where you're buried after you die. You know, so, and I've only listed about 10. There's actually hundreds of scriptures that point to Jesus and hundreds of prophecies that point to his coming. And there's also lots of prophecies that point to his second coming, you know, because he's coming back. It's written here in this Bible. He's coming back, you know. So, yeah. So that's prophecies about Jesus. What about, you know, other instances? Are there, are there say, more recent things that have been prophesied by the Bible with stunning accuracy? And um, i say, yes, there is. In fact, you know, Israel as a nation has only been in existence recently, since 1947. And here we've got a scripture that predicts that, but not only does it predict it, it actually says the circumstances of how it occurs. So I'm going to read it, and I'm going to show you some slides as I read it, and um, I think you'll be quite amazed. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. Ask and see, can a man, that man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hand on his stomach like a woman in labor, every faith turned de- face turned deathly pale? How awful that day will be. No other day will be like it. It will be a time of Jacob, trouble for Jacob but he will be saved out of it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will break the yoke off their necks and I will bear, tear off their bonds. No foreigner will enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God, David their king, who raised them up for them. Do not be afraid, my servant Jacob. 
Do not be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of exile. Jacob will, not, will again have peace and security, and no one make it afraid. So as you can see, that scripture quite clearly points to the events of the 1940s, you know, where God did bring his people out of um, the lands, you know, the earth where they're scattered to them. But it also said, you know, it'll be a day of trouble for Jacob. You know, it'll, there'll be no other like it. And, you know, the Holocaust, six million Jews died, you know, prophesied in the Bible. 2,500 years before it happened. Inspired by God? Yes, this book is inspired by God. Cool. So that's the authenticity of the Bible. So the other part of the scripture of, of the um, what Doug and Jan suggested was the authority of the Bible. You see, we know, we've read, we've seen that this is the word of God, that there's power and life in this book. You know, and well, one of the reasons there's power in this book is it's actually the law. So Western society's laws for hundreds of years anyway, they're trying to change them, but is based on the teachings of this book. So if you go out and, say, try and kill someone or steal, you will find yourself in trouble with the law because of the authority that this book has as far as what's a good and um, bad thing to do. So that's one part of authority. But I just want to finish off with the authority of Scripture is, you know, we know this is the word of life, is the authority of praying scripture. So you've got the word of God, of speaking scriptures over the circumstances you find yourself in. Okay, And um, this is a little bit of a, more of, of a testimony, really. Um, so about a year ago, in fact, almost exactly a year ago, we went into lockdown. And we thought, oh, it'd be good if we could meet together to pray. Um, so we did. We, every morning and every evening for maybe six weeks, five or six weeks, we met on Zoom. Still going, by the way? Yeah. Not, not quite as often, okay, but screenshot that number and plug it into Zoom tomorrow night at 7 o'clock <laughs> or Thursday morning, and you can join us praying some scripture. And anyway, what happened is Phil, um, we started by reading a scripture and then praying, and it got to the point where we were reading the scripture and then we were praying into that scripture. And then probably a couple of months later, Phil Strong made a comment, huh, we seem to be a church which is praying scripture. You know, we've become a church that prays scripture. Well, that's a, that's a good point. And then next thing I know, in my personal prayer life, that starts to happen. I was reading my Bible one day. Okay, and look, you're never going to get the words of God into you Divine inspiration, unless you're reading it. Yeah. yeah. So, and I, and I was reading Jeremiah 1, verse 5. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And, and as I was reading, God said, That's for a friend of yours. I'm like, Whoa. Okay. So I started praying into it and felt the presence of God. I was dying to ask her if she was pregnant, but I couldn't. And so, but she was, and that's now a healthy baby, a healthy, happy baby. And they're not Christians, but man, I believe that God has a calling on that child, you know? And every single day from that point on, I've, I prayed for that child until it was born, you know? And then on, and I find who uses a Bible app here on their phone? 
they've got a, a prayer, um, they've got a prayer part of it. So if there's a scripture that I think applies to somebody, I will then save that as a prayer, and then I'll pray over it, you know. Um, you know, I've got a friend in Northland who, through terrible circumstances, has ended up by herself with seven kids. And, you know, I just felt to pray for her. The God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. Would you make a helper for him? But in this case, I just put her name in, and, you know, you know, so... Um, you know, and so that's my prayer list. My personal prayer list is scriptures that I think. So, yeah. Anyway, do you have a mountain that needs moving? You know, declare scripture over it. Yeah, and I think the way we're going to end this is that we're actually going to get into groups, uh, maybe just with the people around you, and just say what maybe one prayer need is of yours and then find a scripture that would relate to that and then pray into it. So if you guys don't mind, and, and you can say you've got it, you don't know, hopefully there's someone that knows the scriptures are relevant, but of, you know, declare your scripture over your circumstance. Now, I've, I've got, if you don't know enough scriptures, here's some that you can go to.